If I can remember anything about anything, we left off last week with ordinarily what influences us above everything is the outer sense-given visible world of appearances. Does this sound familiar? If it doesn't sound familiar, maybe I haven't been repeating it enough. This great century world with its noise, color, and movement rushing in through the open channels of sight and hearing overwhelms the faint understanding. This is so true. When you think about it, We are inundated, flooded through the five senses with data coming in from the world. It's incredible. All you have to do is try and still your mind for just 60 seconds and you're assailed. You're assailed by sounds. You're assailed by, hopefully you close your eyes and that cuts out supposedly 85% of the data that would be streaming into your brain, but you still got your ears and then you still got the ants crawling on your skin or whatever, you know, the itches and the got to move my foot, got to move this, got to move that, all those things, the sensory things, the touch. And then you've got smells and then you're assailed by thoughts that are stimulated by those senses. Try and deal with that. It's like, wow. The great sensory world with its noise, color, and movement rushing in through the open channels of sight and hearing overwhelms the faint understanding. And you must admit, now that you have had some time observing yourself, that your understanding is faint. Just thank God it's not your heartbeat, because if it was, you'd be dead. Your heartbeat would be so faint, you'd be dead. But fortunately, it's not. If I realize my own invisibility and reach for a moment a new sense of my own existence, I am the next moment lost in the effects of outer things. How many times have you had a realization and then bam, you're lost in the effects of outer things? It's almost like it's blown out of your mind by the senses, blown out of your mind by whatever, whatever comes into us and hammers us with all this stuff that we're dealing with, all this data. I'm aware only of the noise in the street, and I cannot reach the experience again. How many times have you been meditating, and you reach a state, and then something happens, and you just can't seem to get back there? The only thing you get is awareness of the noise in the street, or awareness of the dripping faucet, or awareness of this, or awareness of that. Everything except what you're looking for. I return again to my natural mind to which everything perceptible appeals, and for which the evidence of the senses is mainly the criterion of truth. Our natural mind says that what is true is what the senses show us. If you can't see it, then it's not there. Is that pretty much how it is for us? If you can't see it, then it's not there. Unless you imagine it, but then imagination satisfies every center, so you can imagine something and have it be real for you. Have it be your psychic or your psychological reality, because that's how we're made up. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, I hope. Having experienced something inner, I find myself back in the outer. And the truth that was demonstrated to me directly as internal truth, I can no longer demonstrate to myself with my natural reason, save as a theory or conception. We can talk about it and you can share your experience with someone else by describing it, by talking about it but they won't have it. That doesn't give them the experience. As a matter of fact, you describing it to yourself doesn't give you the experience. If it did, that would be wonderful. All you'd have to do is sit down and describe this great experience you had to yourself when you were meditating, and you'd have that again. Wouldn't that be keen? It just doesn't work that way, does it? Sadly. 
I would say that all ideas that have the power of altering us and letting new meaning into our lives are about the invisible side of things and can't be demonstrated directly or reached by reasoning alone. These things, these inner things, must be apprehended with a different organ, as it were. We have the sense organs, but it would be a different organ, a different organ. And in this case, the organ would be the mind, obviously. And that's not the brain, it's the mind. And the mind would have to operate through something that we have such a faint awareness of that it's hardly, it's hardly worth mentioning. Understanding. We don't have much in the way of understanding. We have a lot in the way of information, but not much in the way of understanding. And that makes a problem for us if we're going to talk about inner truth, internal truth, or the visible side of things. Because they relate to the invisible side of things, they're not approached by reasoning according to the evidence of the senses. Our reasoning is based primarily on the evidence of the senses. If you are sitting here and someone speaks from behind you, you, as a rule, you'll hear them. But you will then turn around to look and see if it's who you think you heard. As a rule, not every time. Some people are, are a little different. But if you hear a sound, you will verify it with your eyes. We verify what we experience with our senses, automatically, mechanically. And it's because our reasoning is based on the senses. Before coming to the idea of time, with which this book is chiefly concerned, and which can only be understood by getting away from appearances and by thinking about the invisible world from the standpoint of dimensions, we must make some effort to grasp the invisibility of ourselves. How have you done this week with that, I am invisible? Have you even remembered to do it at all? Yeah, good. And how, how did that work out? Was it exciting and fun? And I mean, how did that work out for you? Did you find it an interesting idea? Interesting idea. So that was it. It was just... So then what you're saying is the idea is contagious. It moves from you to other people. If I'm invisible and you start to realize your own invisibility, then you begin to become aware of the fact that that other person is invisible to you as well. That you may see their body, but you're not seeing who they really are. You're not seeing their thoughts. You're not seeing their feelings. You're not seeing their experiences. You're not seeing their history, their past. The only thing I would change about that is we're not a bunch of people going around thinking that we know each other and thinking whatever. I'd say that we're just a bunch of machines. And we're not really going around. We're being directed by life. It's like a pinball. You watch a pinball bounce off all the little bumpers, boing, 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 and it goes here and there. You don't know really where it's going to go. You know that eventually it's going to go down because the, the whole machine is tilted so that it goes down. It will eventually, gravity will bring it down if you don't do anything else. If you don't hit it with flippers, if you don't move it, if the bumpers don't move it, eventually it'll go down. That's how it is with us. Eventually, we will go down. We will end up being directed by life. It's interesting. I wouldn't, I don't think it would work that way for me. For me, I think of it as part of the body. What it is identified with is the body. It's really not identified with what's real or what's more real. And I think what's invisible is more real. We are closer to our real self when we're moving internally than we are when we are totally on the circumference of ourselves out on the physical. But given our state, our internal states, which are mostly slums. The neighborhoods that we dwell in most of the time, where most of the little eyes live, are in slums, bad neighborhoods, negative places where we love to hang out because they're familiar to us. It's that old neighborhood. It's where we grew up. And so we know it very well, and we spend a lot of time there. 
You noticed something too, huh? Okay. That's pretty much the idea, isn't it? Nobody knows anybody. The only person you can know, even have any possibility of knowing, is yourself. There's no way you can know someone else. There's no way someone else can know you. When you think about that, that didn't feel very lonely. On the other hand, we relish that because we get to have all kinds of secret, private thoughts and vengeances and hatreds and dislikes and likes and fantasies and so on and so forth in the comfort of our own invisibility, in the anonymity of who we are and what's going on there. Anonymity is a great thing for people who want to party hardy. It's like the picture of Dorian Gray. The idea was that no matter what he did, it never showed on him. It only showed on the picture of him that he kept away somewhere. When you think about that idea, it's really true. We are like that. There's so much that we think we're getting away with because no one can see the picture. The picture's hidden away somewhere. No one can see that. So we think we're getting away with it. But we aren't getting away with it any more than Dorian Gray was getting away with it. It's just that it was the manifestation of his karmic debt, which was being built up, was on the picture, not on him. Interesting idea, interesting esoteric idea, but it is right in line with the idea that we are invisible. Dorian Gray really was invisible. He remained eternally youthful. He remained looking wonderful no matter how much he indulged himself in things that would have killed anybody else. It didn't show on him because it all went to the picture. We must make some effort to grasp the invisibility of ourselves, for I believe that we never understand anything about the invisible world if we do not grasp our own invisibility first. And of course, we're not going to understand anything about anyone else unless we grasp our own invisibility first. And as you said, Pat, after you start to think about your own invisibility, when you notice other people, you start to think of their invisibility as well, as your inability to see them, to know anything about them, really. This is a huge advantage in relationships because you can stop judging if you're so inclined. If you're not inclined to do that, you won't. But you could stop judging people if you could stay aware of that. The chances of you staying aware of that around other people are pretty slim when you think about it. So basically what you're saying is internal truth you can no longer demonstrate to yourself with your natural reason, save as a theory or conception. Basically, you can't have the experience unless you're having the experience. But as soon as you get into your head about it, you're no longer having the experience. You're now describing the experience, thinking about the experience, calculating the experience, cataloging the experience, but not having the experience directly, which, of course, is evidence of what he has been saying here all along and what we have been saying for years. This demands a certain kind of effort the nature of which is similar to the effort required to get some realization of the essential invisibility and unknowableness of another person. In this connection, I believe that we can never realize the existence of another person in any real way unless we realize our own existence. The realization of one's own existence as a real experience is the realization of one's essential invisibility. The really sad part about this is how many people will intellectually grasp this and imagine that that is the real experience, the realization of one's essential invisibility. This we can be counted on to do. We can be counted on to imagine that if we can think it, we're experiencing it. The only way that this can be stopped is through a conscious shock. You have to directly experience something 
and then taste the difference between a direct experience and what comes shortly thereafter. And what comes shortly thereafter is us describing the direct experience. But unfortunately, we go to sleep as soon as we fall into those smaller parts of centers, those more exterior parts of centers that like to describe things. I remember when I was in school, there was a guy, he was out with his son. He had a little boy, maybe four years old, and they were walking around. We lived, the school was on 2,400 acres. And so there was a lot of wooded area and there was a golf course and just a lot of really beautiful, quiet places with birds and like that. And so they were out wandering around and he heard some kind of a bird, the kid did. And he said to his father something about the bird. And the father said to him, without even thinking, he told the boy what kind of bird it was and started explaining to him about it. Took the kid right out of his direct experience of interaction with this being right here, right now. And instead of him just allowing the child to have the experience, because he couldn't have the experience himself, because his mind was so afflicted by the senses and by the intellect that he couldn't have the experience himself, so he instantly tries to drag his kid out of the experience. And he realized it. He realized, oh my God, what am I doing? Instead of just allowing him to have the experience and enjoy it, I have to start to explain to him how he's supposed to have the experience, what he's supposed to get from it, how he's supposed to catalog it, categorize it, what that bird is, what kind of sound it makes, why it's doing that, blah, 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 blah. This was back in the early 70s, and I found it very interesting because that's what we do. It's very difficult to be here now and just be here now because the intellect doesn't want us to be here now. The mind doesn't want us to be here now. It wants us to be somewhere else, and it doesn't want now. Because now is a very dangerous place for the intellect. Because the intellect can't really exist in the now. There's no need for it. Direct experience is direct knowing. What we have instead of direct knowing is this intellectual description of direct knowing. And if you're doing the direct knowing, the intellect doesn't really have much to do. So it's anxious to get back to its job of being you instead of allowing you to be you. Our usual sense of existence is derived from external things. I think it would be fair to say that. We try to press into this visible world to feel ourselves in something outside of us, in money, possessions, clothes, sex, position, to get out of ourselves. Think about this. Think about how often we lose ourselves and we have to define ourselves to ourselves by some action, by some thought, by some word. Some people have to speak so that they can hear themselves talk, so that they know that they're there. Some people have to have someone else pay attention to them so that they know that they're there. It's just the way it is for some people. And everybody's got this to some degree, I'm sure, but some people really are the poster children for this. You may be one of them. We feel that what we lack lies outside us, in the world that our organs of sense delineate to us. This is natural because the world of sense is obvious. If you ignore it, it presses in on you. It is obvious. If you ignore your internal world, it doesn't really matter much. I mean, people can ignore who they really are for a lifetime. Never even think of it. Just think of all the pictures of themselves. It's their imagination of themselves. Or describe themselves by what others have said about them. Or the story that they've made up. Or their story. How many people describe themselves by their story, their song? All of us, we think in terms of it. 
and towards it. The world of the senses. That's how we think. We think in terms of it and towards it. What is your purpose apart from it, the world, the sense-based world? What is your purpose apart from the sense-based world? We don't have one. We can't think of one. We may intellectually have an answer. That's not how you think. That's not how you reason. The solution of our difficulties appears to lie in it, in getting something, in being honored. We don't support even a hint of our invisibility easily, and we don't reflect that while we are related to one obvious world on one side, through the senses, we may also be related to another world on another side, not at all obvious, through understanding. A world which is just as complex and diverse as the world given to us, shown to us by the senses, and which has just as many desirable and undesirable places in it. The internal world is not a panacea for the misery that you find yourself in. How many times in a week do you find yourself in a miserable place? An unpleasant place. Okay, most of us don't even want to admit that we're miserable. Let's just lie and say an unpleasant place. How many times a week do you find yourself in an unpleasant place? At least a dozen. At least a dozen. That's generous. I mean, that's generous to, well, that's generous to yourself. I can't even count. That you actually find yourself. Yeah, that you actually become aware of it. Okay, I get it. Yeah, that makes better sense, doesn't it? (laughs) I was going to say, because if we were only in a bad spot a couple times a day, you know, a dozen times a week, that's only a couple times a day. A couple times a day? Well, you could walk on water as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Daytime and nighttime, two times a day. There are very undesirable places inside of us. And those are the bad neighborhoods that we go to most of the time, that we live in most of the time, the times when we feel vengeful, the times when we feel disliking, the times when we feel we're not being considered properly, the times when we feel no one really understands us. Oh, and it goes on and on. Internal consideration puts us in So many bad states. And if you don't know yet that you spend 99% of your waking hours in internal consideration, you're, I don't know where you are. You're on another planet. You're on the planet of the apes, as far as I can tell. Because the bottom line with us is if you're alive and you're here on this mud ball flying through space, you're spending the majority of your life in internal consideration, thinking about yourself and how it ought to be different. I mean, come on. What is the one thing that destroys our happiness faster than anything else? Our commitment to the idea that this isn't it. It's got to be some other way for me to be happy. Our commitment to now isn't acceptable. Our commitment to the past was better, the future better be better. Because now really sucks. What's now? What's now? Now is boring. That's what we think now is. And that's why we constantly go fishing into the past or fishing into the future. We'll spend our time casting our net forward into the future or backward into the past. But who really spends much time in the now? It's very difficult because the senses and the sense-based mind are assailing us, as we've already said. Our bodies stand in the visible world. That's clear. Here we are. We're in the visible world. This is where our bodies are. They stand in the space of three dimensions, accessible to the sense of sight and of touch. I can see your body. I can touch your body. I can hear your body. Sometimes, unfortunately, I can smell your body. And I guess I could taste your body, but I don't think I want to do that. Our bodies are themselves three-dimensional. They have length, height, and breadth. They are solids in space. But we ourselves are not in this world of three dimensions. And this is where the separation must occur. 
it is not enough to say we ourselves are not in this world of three dimensions. We must realize our being apart from this thing that our sense of self has entered into, that our identity has entered into, that we have become attached to. This is not going to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy the first time. It's not easy the second time. I don't know if it's ever easy. I think it gets easier because I think we become more accustomed to the truth. I think that the weight of these ideas as they grow, they get heavier and they expand and they begin to take up more internal room inside of us. And they begin to push out the ideas that contradict them, the ideas from the little eyes and the little centers and the more mechanical parts of centers. They get pushed out. Bigger ideas just blot out the smaller ideas, the smaller concepts, until, well, like you said, Pat, when you started to think about I am invisible, that idea started to expand and include other people in your world. They're invisible too. And then that idea expands, I really don't know anybody. And then that idea expands, I, I, I don't know myself. And then that idea expands, I can't know myself. I can't know anyone else. They really are invisible. And it starts to become an experience. And then just as the experience waxed, it wanes. First it swells and then it begins to shrink. First it becomes clear and then it starts almost instantly. It reaches a peak. And then it starts to disappear. It starts to evaporate. It starts to go away. And that means that we are being sucked back into the world of the senses through the senses and the sense-based mind, which is pretty much inevitable for us in our current state. Our thoughts, for instance, are not three-dimensional solids. If I push you, you're going to be moved. If I think at you, you probably won't be moved. In fact, you won't be moved. And isn't that a good thing? Because if everyone who thought at you was moving you, you would really be in trouble. I mean, talk about being in a tornado. On the other hand, you might not at all because maybe nobody thinks of you. I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that we don't like that quite as much as the other one that people do think of us. <laughs> one thought is not to the right or left of another thought. Yet, are they not quite real to us? If we say that reality is confined to that which exists in the three-dimensional world outside, then we have to regard all of our thoughts and feelings inside as unreal which is one of the things that we have to come to grips with. There are a number of our thoughts and feelings inside that are unreal. And we have to learn to distinguish between the real and the unreal. We have to learn to distinguish between what is true and what is not true internally. We have been fed a lot of misinformation and disinformation that needs to be sorted through. And that's why these ideas are so important, because they become the standard that you use. They're the litmus paper for the truth, for real ideas and false ideas, because we all have false ideas. Our inner life, oneself, has no position in that space which is perceptible to the senses. Now think about this. While thought, feeling, and imagination have no position in space, it's possible to think of them having position in some other kind of space. You can think of them, for example, as I had a thought before that thought. I had a feeling that lasted this long. How many feelings do you have that last a long time, a lot longer than you want them to? And then other feelings that you have that don't last nearly as long as you want them to. So we can see that they can occupy space because there seems to be this past and this present. There seems to be time for thoughts and feelings. One thought follows another in passing time. A feeling lasts a certain time and then disappears. 
If we think of time as a fourth dimension, or a higher dimension of space, our inner life seems to be related to this higher space, or world in more dimensions than those accessible to our senses. The world accessible to our five senses is three-dimensional. Then there is another world with another dimension, or maybe a lot of other dimensions, that is only accessible to the mind, to the understanding, but not to the senses. For example, if we conceive of a higher-dimensional world, we might consider that we don't live properly speaking in the world of three dimensions that we touch and see, and in which we meet people but have more intimate contact with a more dimensioned form of existence, beginning with time. So the real world, the world that you're really living in, that's invisible, is the world where time is happening. Time is not really happening out here. I'll explain that to you. But before we talk about dimensions, let's consider the world of appearances, the world which our senses reveal to us. Make some reflections on two ways of thinking, one of which starts with the visible side of things, and the other from the invisible side of things. All that we see falls on the retina of the eye, upside down as in a camera. A picture of the world refracted through the lens of the eye falls on the surface of the retina, where it's received by a great number of nerve endings or sensitive points. The picture is two-dimensional, like that on a screen, upside down, and distributed over separate recording points. Yet, this picture is in some way transformed for us into the smooth, solid world that we are now looking at. You're looking at this world, and it is somehow, this upside-down, two-dimensional picture is somehow being translated into this. Somehow, you are making this, what you're seeing, out of that two-dimensional upside-down picture. Somehow, something is doing that. Now, that's something to think about. So, think about it. Out of pictures, I've imagined solid things. Out of space of two dimensions, as we call it, I have made space of three dimensions. That's W.K. Clifford, Lectures and Essays, Volume 1, page 260, 1879, from a lecture, Philosophy of the Pure Sciences. 1879. This guy was thinking... He was observing. It's almost a lost art when you think about it. The outer world seems close to us, not as if we were in contact with it, but as if we were in it. This isn't like we're looking into something. This is like we are in it. How does that happen? We're not aware of being in contact with it only through our sense organs, situated all over the curtain of flesh. That's what it is. It's a curtain of flesh that stands between you and this sense-based world. You, invisible, on this other side of the curtain that cannot be perceived through the sense organs that this sense-based world is perceived with, pictured with, delineated with, or by. We don't have the impression of looking into the world through the little living nerve machines of the eye. The world merely seems there, and we right in the middle of it. Nor does it seem to be a quantity of separate impressions. We're not looking at separate impressions. This whole thing is all flowed together, pasted together, glued together. It's inseparable. You cannot separate this impression from that impression very easily. So we're not looking at as separate impressions coming through our various senses that combine by the action of the mind into a composite whole. We're not looking at it that way at all. Yet we know that if we had no eyes or ears, we could not see or hear anything. Simultaneous sensations coming through the different senses combined in the mind Give us the appearance and qualities of a rose. It's not just the eyes 
that give us the quality of the rose. It's also the smell, the touch. All of that combined give us the appearance and qualities of a rose. The rose is actually created for us out of all these separate impressions. Yet, it is practically impossible to realize the matter in this way. For us, the rose is simply there. How often do we look at something and we have all of those thoughts? Well, it's the smell and it's the sight, the touch. All of these things are coming together and somehow in my brain, they're all being put together in a way that gives me the impression that this is a rose and that I am here with this rose, that I can distinguish myself from this rose by the sense of touch, by the sense of sight, by the sense of smell. When we consider that the picture of the world on the retina is two-dimensional and that this is the source of contact with the outer scene, it's not difficult to understand that Kant came to the conclusion that the mind creates the physical world and lays down the laws of nature, owing to innate dispositions in it that arrange the stream of incoming sensations into an organized system. I don't know if you've ever studied any Kant, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, but it's a good read. I had to read Kant when I was in school. He was one of the philosophers I had to read. There were certain books you had to read. It was just required. And it was never wasted. These guys really thought through things. And it was great training on how to think. You have to learn how to think. It just doesn't come naturally. The natural kind of thinking that comes to us isn't very good. And that's why education, the first education, is so necessary. Because without the first education, your second education doesn't have anything to act on. You've got to have a rich first education in order to get something from your second education. The senses merely give us messages. And out of these, we create the visible, tangible, audible world by some interaction of the mind, by something which is more than the messages. What we are getting from this world is more than the sum of its parts because something in our mind is putting it all together and making something out of it that is more than the sum of all the parts. That's why one person can look at a rose and get, oh yeah, it's a rose. And another person can look at a rose and get high. Some person could go to the Rocky Mountains and go, wow, it's cold up here. And somebody else goes to the Rocky Mountains and starts singing, Rocky Mountain High, Colorado, and makes a million dollars. You choose which person you want to be. Well, the person who did that last one, though, he died in a plane crash, so I would recommend you try not to be him. Because all that money isn't doing him any good at all right now. Nor is the plane, nor is the property, nor is his Rocky Mountain High, nor is his anything. None of that matters now. Because now his visible form is gone, and all that's left of him is the invisible. Wherever that may be, we don't know because we are so limited to just this visible world. Think about how limiting that is. All the people who got rid of their physical bodies, they now exist, but we don't know where. And because we're so limited by our five senses, we can only imagine. We'll talk about that some more later, too. I don't know how much later, probably next week, because right now we're pretty much done, I think. It's extremely difficult to persuade ourselves that this is so. In order to do so, we must detach ourselves from the overwhelmingly immediate impression of an external reality in which we are invariably immersed. Like the little fish says to its mother, Mommy, what's water? Well, honey, you're swimming in it. Huh? That's us. We're so immersed in this world of the five senses that we don't know it as a rule. This effort is of the same peculiar nature as that required to bring to us a realization of the invisibility of ourselves 
or other people. We'll leave off there, and we'll talk about what's next, next time. Truth is everything.